Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Turn, if you will, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and verses 21 to 26. Happily in the providence of God, uh, we've already read the law of God with respect to this passage from James chapter 4. So Matthew 5, verse 21, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, verse 21 to verse 26. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. Thanks be to our God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, without you we can do nothing. We humble ourselves in full reliance upon you. For words and for hearing, bless us, we pray. Reveal to us the fullness of your word and law. Reveal to us the fullness of salvation in Christ. And help us then, Lord God, love you and obey you as you have called us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. While working our way through Matthew's Gospel as we are, we've come to the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen that the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of life in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so far, our Lord has taught us that life in that kingdom is comprised of graces, the Beatitudes, and of righteousness, the law, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And those graces and that uh, exercise of the law are not to be seen in opposition to each other. In fact, the people who possess the graces are to be the same people who work righteousness according to the law of God. That is, the Christian is to be a lover of the law of God and thus to exhibit the graces of which Christ has spoken. Indeed, loving and practicing the law of God ought never lead us to become a cold, censorious, and and merciless Christian. Neither ought it ever to lead us to become external Christians who think that the law somehow speaks to just what we do and not what goes on in our hearts. No, the the law of God that our Lord speaks of here, really from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way through to chapter 7 and verse 14, uh, tells us that we are to love God and thus obey him. That law-keeping and love of the law is a matter of the heart and doesn't just speak to the externals of a person. And so we see today, friends, the law speaks to our hearts. 
speaks to our motivations, speaks to what is inside us as much as what it speaks to what we do with the outer man. And we're going to see in this passage, there's really three distinct sections. Indeed, there is in in most of the sections throughout chapter 5, the different subjects, we're going to see three sections. First of all, our Lord in verse 21 is going to tell us how the Jews fell short of the mark of the law. They fell short in their understanding. They fell short in their practice. Then in verse 22, he's going to fully explain the law to them. He's going to reveal the law in its fullest sense. And then briefly for us today in verses 23 to 26, he's going to apply the full scope of the law. So three things, how the Jews misunderstood the law, how Jesus has come to explain the law, and thirdly, how he then applies the law to our daily lives. First of all, how the Jews had fallen short of the mark. You'll notice this section speaks very, uh, speaks in, in the same way as verse 27 uh, or verse 33 and verse 38, verse 43. There's a repeated formula. You have heard it said to those of old, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you, there's a lot of debate about what is going on in the narrative here. Some Christians uh, suggest that our Lord has come to correct the old law, that he's come to correct it, uh, that somehow uh, it's as if he's saying, well, you've heard what was said of old. That's wrong. I've come to tell you what is right. Now, you don't need to know much about Scripture to know that's a preposterous idea, that the law of God given in the Old Testament is precisely the law of God that Christ has now come to fulfill and exegete. Other Christians, and I agree with them, say, what was said of old was right, but you Jews have misunderstood, misapplied, you've corrupted the law, and I've come to teach you the truth. The law really means its full scope. Clearly, that's what's going on here. The Jews, we know as we read the Gospels, had misunderstood the law, had perverted the law, had corrupted it. They had misapplied it. Now, it's going to help us to understand how they got there. Because after all, they're the covenant people. God gave them the law at Sinai, the Ten Commandments of which our Lord is speaking now. How did they get to this place where really they'd lost the heart of the law of God? Well, the Jews believed that not only did God give them the Ten Commandments at Sinai in tablets of stone, but he also gave an oral commentary at Sinai, that he gave them uh, chapter after chapter after chapter of spoken instruction and commentary on the moral law. The Jews called it the oral tradition. The oral tradition. Why? Because it was passed down verbally from generation to generation to generation. Uh, In the early centuries after Christ's uh, ascension back to heaven, this oral tradition was then written down. And it's what we call the Talmud today. Uh, All that oral tradition written down. Now, the oral tradition, the Jews thought, because it was given by God at Sinai in addition to the Ten Commandments, was as binding as the Ten Commandments itself. It's really important to understand. But the problem is the oral tradition did not come from God. It came from the Israelites. 
in an attempt, presumably at first, to exegete the Ten Commandments, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. Look at our shorter catechism and larger catechism. But in an attempt to exegete the law, what they did was define, redefine, and uh, both define and redefine what is sin and what was the law of God. And as they defined more and more, they got further and further away from the heart of the law. Not only did they corrupt the law of God, they moved it further and further away from the heart of man. So the sixth commandment, as we see here, you murder for the Jews, simply became a purely external act and one which, according to their oral tradition, was very, very tightly and highly defined. Let me give you an example. This is the Jewish Encyclopedia's commentary on the Talmud's teaching, the oral law tradition on the Sixth Commandment. And you begin to see, and there's, there's far more than I could quote here, but I'm giving you a, a flavor of what they taught about murder. Listen to it and you begin to see just how they began to redefine the law of God. The quote is this. There is, however, notwithstanding the presence of premeditation, no capital murder in Jewish law unless death is caused by the direct physical act of the assailant. Thus, listen to this, starving a man to death or exposing him to heat or cold or wild beasts, or in any other way bringing about his death, would not be a capital murder. The second is to murder committed not by the instigator himself, but by his agent or servant. So we could summarize that by saying, you can stab someone and it's capital murder, um, but you can starve them to death and it's not capital murder. You could hit them with an iron bar and it's capital murder, but throwing them in a lion's den is not capital murder. Interesting. Luther comments on this section of scripture. He says, in the sixth commandment, to give one example, all they saw was the word kill, which they took to mean to strike dead with a hand. This was all they taught people, as though this commandment forbade nothing beyond this. Thus they gave themselves a magnificent way out. They would not be guilty of murder if they handed someone over to another person to be killed. When they delivered Christ to the Gentile Pilate, they did not want to defile their hands with blood and wanted to stay pure and holy. They even refused to go into the judge's house, and yet it was they alone who were bringing on his death and compelling Pilate against his will to kill him. Now, we could go on. I could give you page after page after page of redefinition of the sixth commandment according to the oral tradition. But you see what's happened. The more you define the law of God according to man's standards, not God's standards, the more you lose the substance of the law of God. Sinclair Ferguson says of this uh, idea, he says, the full force of the law of God was destroyed by the Jews. But friends, we would have to acknowledge that this passage teaches us when God commands something of us, he addresses the whole person. He addresses our mind, our motivations, our speech, as well as our external actions. That's something the Jews had written out of their lives. 
So as long as they didn't physically murder someone, they were not guilty under this commandment. Think how they spoke of the death of our Lord in Acts chapter 5. They're speaking to the apostles who've been preaching, and they say to them, Acts 5.28, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They really thought they were not guilty of putting our Lord to to death because the Romans had done it. And yet earlier in the sermon at Pentecost, Peter tells them, You crucified the Lord. They seriously thought they were innocent of Christ's blood because they had not hammered the nails into Christ's hands. Luther again comments on this in a way that only Luther can. Listen, he says, look at this beautiful Pharisaic holiness. It can purify itself and stay pious as long as it does not kill with its own hand. Though its heart may be crammed full of anger, hate and envy, of hidden and evil schemes of murder, and though its tongue may be loaded with curses and blasphemies, they thought they were innocent according to the law. Why? Because they'd misinterpreted the Sixth Commandment. They'd spent centuries reinterpreting the Sixth Commandment according to their own standards and understanding. They said it only applied to externals. Not the heart, not the motivation, not the thoughts, not the tongue. And it suited them to do just that, to say it only applies to the outer man. Because as Luther said earlier, it gives them a magnificent way out. They were innocent. No, according to them, they were righteous according to the law of God. It was their way of producing a righteousness, which though it didn't work with God, worked very well with men. And friends, it's a week when we've seen the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade. And we see this phenomenon of, over, of, of redefining the law of God in those in the church and those outside of the church. So that, for example, the murder of babies has been called abortion care. Women's health care, women's choice, pro-choice, everything but murder whether it's by the religious or the irreligious, the redefinition of the law of God and therefore of sin can have terrible, soul-damning consequences, friends. Because to redefine sin in one's likeness will then send you directly to a saviour who can address that kind of redefined sin. And if you've got sin in your own likeness, you will create a savior in your own likeness. That's not going to work. If anyone is genuinely interested in salvation from sin, keeping the law of God pure in our understanding is vital so that we'll have a full and clear and successful savior. Legalism, as we saw last week. And antinomianism, two sides of the same coin, always are enemies of salvation. If you get the problem wrong, you'll get the savior wrong. Moreover, we see what kind of person 
this kind of externalism produces. Cold-hearted murderers. That's what our Lord's saying to them. But love for the law of God does not produce angry, censorious, murderous, judgmental people. Love for the law of God produces Christ-like beatitudinal graces and behavior and a zeal, though imperfect, a zeal to treasure and meditate upon and keep the law of God. Uh, Friends, um, wisdom is justified by her children. That's what our Lord said. Wisdom is justified by her children. The wise generally produce wise. That's the principle. So too does folly, is folly justified by his children. Our Lord says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's our Lord's diagnosis of the law and the salvation and the righteousness of which the scribes and Pharisees taught. Friend, I want to ask you today, is your apprehension of the law of God and your estimation of the law of God, do you stand with Jesus or do you stand with the Pharisees? Because Jesus then came to tell us what this law meant to reveal the full scope of the law of God. In verse 22, he came in the Sermon on the Mount to reveal the full scope, the fullest sense of the law. That's what he means. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill, to fill up its meaning both in precept and in conduct. Our Lord now in verse 22 corrects this understanding of the Jews. Now, some Christians have read this in verse 22, as we mentioned earlier, and said that really this is freeing us from the Ten Commandments which were given to the Jews. We've got a new law in the New Covenant, and it does away with some of the laws of the Ten Commandments, but that's patently not true. Verse 17 of the same chapter tells us what our Lord is doing. He is telling us the law of God is binding upon us, the moral law. And he's telling us the scope now of that moral law. Not abolishing it, but filling up its sense. The principle here is this. While each of the Ten Commandments names one sin, that one sin stands to represent all sins that are like it. That's the principle that's going to work through the rest of this passage. So when Christ deals with the sixth commandment, murder, he's actually going to give us three examples of sins which fall under the sixth commandment. Anger, insulting your brother, calling your brother a fool. That's what's going on here. The commandment of God is, as it were, in embryonic form. It gives birth to a myriad of defining other sins. You can see immediately when our Lord says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or whoever insults his brother or whoever says you fool will be liable to judgment. Immediately, our Lord's exegesis of the law differs to the Jews' exegesis. Radically different. 
And that that ought not to surprise us, friends, when we consider what Scripture says about the Word of God generally. Hebrews 4 verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, the very inner man, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Or Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Friends, nothing is hidden from the eyes of God. Nothing is hidden from the ears of God. And we can say this, nothing is hidden from the eyes and ears, as it were, of the law, the word of God. Consider what our Lord says here. The three sins particular that he focuses upon in verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Let's not immediately give ourselves the get-out clause of being righteous in our anger. Because we're prone to do that, aren't we? Oh, but but my anger is righteous. (laughs) Your anger is never righteous. The clause in which it's involved might be righteous, but our anger is never truly perfectly righteous. There is always sin involved. And I would venture to say that most of our anger is plain unrighteous anger. It's not even a righteous cause uh, that we are involved in. We can fool ourselves a whole lot easier than we can fool everyone around us on that front. Let's not major on the exception, righteous anger. Anger, says our Lord, is invariably sin. Let's be clear what anger is. Anger is your reaction, my reaction... Your reaction to circumstances you don't like. Your reaction, my reaction to circumstances we don't like. No one makes you angry. Anger is your decision, your choice. And we cannot excuse ourselves by saying, well, they made me angry. No, that's just a loss of personal control and grace. And anger is largely a product of pride, where someone has infringed something that is precious to us, our opinion, our principles. We've been inconvenienced. We've been put down. And we resort to anger. And we would have to say, friends, that anger is the weakest, most immature, and most brutish of responses to that kind of situation. The weakest, most immature, and most brutish reaction. Because what we do in anger is this. We throw our weight around. We shout loudest. We vilify. We intimidate. We gossip. We slander behind people's backs. Why? Because we must have our way. We must have our way. And frankly, we're prepared to murder to get it. Not literally in our hearts. We see this anger in the Jews many, many times over, not least in their hatred of Christ, especially at his death. Note, the penalty for this kind of anger towards one's brother is this very same penalty that Christ quotes in verse 21. You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The very same penalty. The second example he gives is insults. Those who insult their brother will be liable to the council. That's the Greek word raka. The the Aramaic word for it would be something like empty-headed. The simple. Or Proverbs might say the stupid. That person has never listened to counsel in their life. They're always full of their own ideas and opinions. They always speak. They never listen. They never ask questions. They always make statements. Now, to call your brother such or your sister such is to treat them with contempt. It might be true in some sense of them, but to call them such is to treat them with contempt. It's to show a root of bitterness towards that individual. And it shows in the offender a heart of pride that holds others for whom Christ has died in contempt. The judgment for this, they'll be brought before the council. Quite possibly the Sanhedrin of the day, maybe the church courts of today. We ought not to think that's a lesser sanction than those who are angry. This sin of insulting our brothers, if unatoned for, receives precisely the same judgment as every other sin, death and hell forever. Thirdly, there's calling one's brother a fool. The Greek word there is moros. We get the word moron from it. We're talking about the fool of Proverbs. And we know what the fool says in his heart. There is no God. And so when we call our brother a fool, we're saying, you're an unbeliever. Christ has not died for you. You do not belong to the household of faith. It's the kind of attitude that tramples over brethren, treats them as unbelievers. It's the Pharisee and the publican, isn't it? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Such will be guilty, says our Lord, of the fires of hell, which ultimately all our sins deserve. Do you see what our Lord is saying, friends? You may not have murdered with your hands, but what have you done in your heart and with your mouth? The penalty for both, whether it's heart or hand, is ultimately the same. Might not be the same in this world, but ultimately it's the same. And we know, don't we, because of the proliferation of murder and the coverage of news, we see the carnage, the terror, the fear, the grief that comes with physical murders in our society. Friends, there is a similar carnage. A similar grief, a similar terror in character assassination. It's happened in this church. Don't be one of those who's been involved in it. Not only does it leave carnage in the lives of others, it actually leaves the offending heart in a total mess. It's the place where murder was brewed up. A place where it was enacted. Not by the hand, the heart. And it came out of the mouth. And somebody's reputation like that has been prejudiced or assassinated. Do we see ourselves 
in this way, in the way we speak or the way we think. One commentator says it is particularly bad for Christians angry at other Christians who themselves also have been spared God's wrath. What our Lord's saying is this, there is an incompatibility between this kind of behavior with a sincere profession of faith in Christ. Christ never treated his brethren this way. And friends, neither ought we to do. And just so we're clear about the implications of these things, very briefly, in verses 23 to 26, our Lord applies this principle. Jews, you've got the commandment wrong. Here's the truth of the commandment, the whole scale. So what are you going to do? Notice he doesn't say, stop hating your brother, stop being angry. I mean, that goes without saying, doesn't it? (laughs) It goes without saying. But he's going to show us the effects of, of this anger. Our Lord, here in verses 23 to 26, notwithstanding the most serious nature of these sins, actually points us to the way of recovery and points us to the way of reconciliation. Notice in verses 23 to 25, there is at least the possibility, indeed there is the command to reconcile. There is the command to find peace. Uh, Notice what is said. So if you're offering your gift, at the, if you're coming to church, he means, if you're coming to church and there remember your brother or something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Reconciled. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser uh, while you are going with him to court. Before you get there, reconcile. You see, this immediately moves both the offending party and the offended out of the realm of of strict law, of strict justice, into the realm of gospel, peace, forgiveness, reconciliation, and life. Our Lord is saying there is a way out of anger and its effects. The first setting is worship. If you're going to offer a sacrifice and you know your brother has something against you, leave the sacrifice and go and sort it out. Don't come to worship, friends, if you're at odds with a brother or sister. That's what our Lord is saying effectively. Because worship ought to be an act of unity, not an act of disunity. How terrible worship can be when you're at odds with a brother or sister. How bitter worship can be when there's conflict in the body of Christ. How blessed it is when there's unity. Scripture says it's good and it's pleasant. It's wonderful, isn't it? Come to worship. We hear each other singing the praises of God. You might not be able to see the smiles on people's faces, but I can see it. The enjoyment of God, his presence, the gospel proclaimed, the forgiveness of sins and assurance of pardon declared. Oh, it's invigorating, isn't it? But oh, how terrible it is when that person over there is under my skin. Our Lord says, don't come to church without at least doing all you can to solve the issue at hand. How many of us struggle in this way, friends? 
How many of us are prepared to walk in here and say it was just me and Jesus today? That's nonsense. That's nonsense. It's greatly dishonouring to God to enter here and with our mouth praise him, having spent the mouth complaining about our brethren and slandering them. And I don't mean anything by that other than what I'm literally saying. Just so I'm clear. The second setting is a legal setting, verse 25. If you're on the way to court, he's not going to deal with Christians going to court. That's not his point. He's saying, if you're on your way to court, wouldn't it be better to to make up and reconcile, be at peace, come to terms with your accuser before you get to court? Because if you get to court and you lose your case, what's going to happen? The judge is going to hand you over to the guard. The guard's going to put you in prison. And you're not going to get out till you've paid the last penny, says our Lord. You're past the time for mercy at that point. But Jesus is saying, while you walk on the way to court, as it were, find mercy with your brethren. Find reconciliation. Find peace with them. Sort out the problem. Even if you can't agree on who's to blame or who's, even if you can't agree on those, sometimes Christians are called just to look past those things in love. Friends, are you a reconciler? Are you a reconciler or a grudge bearer? What, 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 what's intrinsic to you? Our Lord has just said in the passage before this, blessed are the peacemakers friends be a maker of peace in this body in your family in this church make peace because friends the christian is called to peace we ought not be those who are bearing grudges and i'm not talking about working out issues in proper biblical structured ways sometimes we've got to do that but we ought not be those who bear grudges who hate each other Or are angry with each other. Why? Because there is forgiveness with God. Underpinning this whole commandment. And our Lord's exegesis and application of it is what? Forgiveness. Sort it out while you can. Why? Because God has forgiven us. God has forgiven the Christian. Before we got to the bar of God's justice on the day of judgment... He made peace with us. He delivered us from our sins, even the sin of anger, from which we can be delivered, not just in Christ dying for those sins, but in the Spirit working in us so that we put those sins to death. You see, friends, Christ has come to reveal the whole scope of the law of God so that he might reveal fully the whole scope of salvation in him. If you don't belong to Christ here today, we urge you with the greatest urging and the urgency of the moment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of your sins, not just the sin of anger, all of your sins will be forgiven. And for the Christian, we constantly repair to Christ in repentance, don't we? We constantly go back to him. Let's seek more and more. To love our Savior, to love God, to trust him. And in remembrance of the fact that God has delivered us from our sins, even the sin of anger, let us be those who seek to put anger to death. Let's pray.
Lord, how truly blessed are we who know your forgiveness and whose sins have been cleared. We bless and magnify you, Lord our God, for your great kindness to us in speaking your word this day. Lord, turn us from worldly responses. Sanctify our minds, our emotions, our affections, that we, your people, might love you and honor you. Bless the word to our hearts, we pray, Lord God, that we might live well before you and bring glory to you, our Father in heaven. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.